Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson, and I have kind of a thrilling ride in my life because I'm a CEO coach, and I get to work with people who are just arriving in the big seat or are now taking their first steps in that new role. And I had the opportunity to get to know Michael Dell 20 years ago. Now, here's a guy who at the University of Texas at Austin was building computers in his bathtub when he realized he could rally and partner with what he called just-in-time delivery. In other words, bringing together all the resources to build a computer on spec, on time, on budget for customers. Since then, he's built a business that has become global and built for enterprises and individuals. And he's just a hell of a great guy. Listen to how Michael Dell talks about evolving as a leader on the leadership journey. I wanted to talk with you about your entrepreneurial youth. If you could share with us some of the experiences you had, maybe some of your favorite experiments that you had as a kid, and chart for us kind of how old you were when you're having that time of your life uh, early on, and maybe what some of the lessons were that you gathered from those experiences. I was a resourceful kid, uh, so you know, started with with baseball cards, and then sort of moved into uh, stamps and gold and silver, you know, and then into uh, the stock market. And then the first job I, I got when I could actually drive. Uh, so this was, you know, five or six jobs in, into into my uh, work experience. And I was working for the Houston Post newspaper. And my job was to call people on the telephone and convince them to buy the newspaper. And the first kind of partial month I worked there, I figured out that when people wanted to buy the newspaper, either they were you know, uh, moving into a new house or apartment, or they just got married. Uh, the, the way you find people just got married is you go to the county courthouse and they have the applications for marriage licenses which are a matter of public record in the state of Texas. And there's an address on the application form that says where you want the license sent to. So that turns out to be a really good place to send people a, an offer to get the newspaper. Uh, the other thing I found was that you could actually get lists of people who had applied for and, and received mortgages. And that was another great list of people. So. My first full month at the paper, I was uh, the top salesperson of newspapers. I was having a great time. This was kind of a summer job. So, so uh, I started uh, kind of hiring my friends and sending them out to all the surrounding counties to collect all these lists of uh, people that had applied for marriage licenses and just had a, had a blast. I was 16 years old. And the result of that was that I think you not only were doing something beyond what other kids were doing, they were getting allowance, but you actually got wheels out of this. What was the result that you had from uh, <laughs> building this little mini empire of yours in the newspaper business? Yeah, I uh, saved my money and bought a new BMW. So you made how much? When I was at my senior year in, in high school, um, uh, we had this project in, in our government and economics class, and the project was to fill out our tax return. And my teacher was really upset with me because she thought I'd, you know, made a mistake or did it wrong because I'd made more than she did. And <laughs> she never kind of forgave me for that. So when you think about how this relates to your business now, what's the piece of advice or lesson that you would leave for someone who started a newspaper route or was an entrepreneur in their youth as you were? 
you know, it's it's experiment and and look for new ways of doing things. Be resourceful. I mean, I I learned an early lesson in the value of uh, getting a direct contact with the customer, <laughs> and and not doing it in a random way, but doing it in a very targeted way. I've always believed in sort of looking at the problem in a different in a different way, and you know, being resourceful. How would you characterize the startup of? Dell Corporation. You were there in your bathtub reassembling circuit boards, not going to <laughs> class, and uh, being resourceful again. How would you characterize that experience? At the you know, beginning of the the kind of development of, of the of the PC, what we know of as the PC today, um, you know, there were all sorts of uh, stores that were selling PCs and kind of dedicated computer stores and. Uh, you know, as a customer, uh, I observed that it took a very long time for the technology to actually get all the way through the manufacturers, through the stores, and then to the customer. And it had an incredible cost by the time it got all the way through this long, complicated process. And the people who were selling the products in the stores were really just kind of jumping onto a fad. They, they said, oh, this is the computers of the new thing in the, in the 80s, let's open a computer store. And it was a franchise kind of model, and so there were a lot of these stores popping up. And so as a customer, I was frustrated. It cost too much, took too long. People in the store didn't know anything about it. And I kind of said, oh, it's got to be a better way to do this. You know? <laughs> and I started, uh, you know, having taken apart you know, more, more than a few computers, understanding what's inside them, I started by selling upgrade kits for computers. The memory, the, the hard disk drives. At the time, you, the, the PC didn't have a hard disk drive. So I would buy hard disk drives, I'd buy controller cards, I'd make cables, I'd write software to essentially you know, upgrade a PC. And that was the, really the, the, the origins of the company, you know, in, in my dorm room, <laughs> and, and, uh, and kind of grew from there. Uh, within, you know, uh, about a year, uh, we started to make our own PCs, which it turns out wasn't that hard to do because all the components came not from the guys who were who were making the PCs. They came from, you know, the microprocessor company, the disk drive company, the power supply company, and so, you know, using this this uh, belief that by working directly with the customer, we could get them the technology faster, provide a better level of service, provide better value. Uh, that was sort of the, the basis of the business. So the company grew about 80% per year for eight years in a row. So we screwed up all kinds of things, but the fundamental business system was quite powerful and you know, delivered lots of, of uh, value to our customers. I think you characterized it as a, a series of experiments, most of which failed, but none of which was so large that it uh, transformed the company in the wrong direction. Yeah, that, that's that's right. I mean, uh, you know, we screwed up a lot of things, but uh, the, the the one thing that we really got right was this was this core business model, and it sort of masked any other mistake that we made. And we 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 learned pretty quickly. We'd try something. If it didn't work, we'd go do something else. Because you know, I, at my high school, they didn't really teach a whole teach us a whole lot about how to run. A big computer company, so I, I was sort of making it up as I was going along, hiring the best people we could. But you know, as a company with no venture capital, uh, private company, non-public, you know, you're, you're attracting only a certain special kind of risk taker. 
So Michael, as you're thinking about the time that you had as an entrepreneur, as a kid, and the experiments that you had, and the success of really identifying a consumer need as a youth over and over again, how did that really empower you to develop an organization like Dell? It's a good question. I'm not totally sure. <laughs> I think, I think uh, you know, listening, uh, resourcefulness, you know, um, I kind of, uh, you know, I've always been curious, and, I've, and my curiosity has been rewarded. So I continue to be curious. So I just look for new ideas, look for new approaches, uh, don't really accept the, the status quo, don't tend to be satisfied with the way things are, and it's just kind of, you know, in, in the wiring. Michael, when you think about the process of setting strategy for an organization this large and this global, how do you go about doing that? What's involved? In our case, you know, the, the senior leadership team, which is about 12 people, um, are essentially the key decision-making group for, for, for the company and are, and are quite involved in setting the strategy for, for, for the whole company. Now, in each individual business, of course, you've got a business leader who kind of owns the strategy. But the overall portfolio strategy, you know, certainly I as the CEO own it, but I'm involving this very capable team of leaders, many of whom were CEOs themselves, in, in doing this. I think we'll get a much better answer that way. I think we'll get a, a more bought-in answer uh, as opposed to trying to keep it, you know, uh, confined to two or three people just at the very center of the company. That's kind of, the, the, you know, the, the way we're doing it. But we, 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 we believe that the line leaders, you know, have to own, own the strategy themselves uh, to, you know, to be able to execute it. How do you flow the information from the markets back to the line and up to the top of the organization so that you feel like you've got strategy that represents where the markets are headed? Well, we have a pre pretty regular cadence of you know, operations reviews and certainly regular metrics that tell us how the businesses are doing, you know, spend time in each of the businesses. Uh, and then if, if, if a business has either a lot of challenge or a lot of opportunity, we tend to spend more time on those businesses. So if it, you know if it's new or if it's let's say in a bit of disrepair, you know we'll 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 provide some extra attention to it. If it's just kind of trucking along nicely and and you know has a great strategy and things are under control, well, we don't, we don't, there's not a lot for us to to do. Can you share an example of uh, an area where, because of the strategy process, you've decided to explore new territory or or expand the business? I read that you were expanding into business consulting, enterprise consulting. Yeah, services is a great example. I mean, we have a fast-growing services business. Uh, you know, four or five years ago, it was under $2 billion. Now it's a $6 billion business on a run-rate basis, expanding rapidly, particularly in managed services and infrastructure services for our clients as we, as we kind of move from products to services. And so let's say you're a company, you've got 150,000 employees. We'll take over the, the management of the whole client environment, the desktops, the notebooks, the printers, the software, the, the moving them around, the help desk, the whole, the whole thing. So that's a big growth area of our business and also helping customers uh, deploy and install and you know, uh, migrate to new enterprise uh, solutions. So if you're doing a, a big you know, email installation or big server virtualization project or a big database cluster, you know, uh, there's, there's a, a lot of services around those products that, that we're quite involved in. Now, was that the process of looking at competition and looking at what the market needed? How did you 
Could you walk us through maybe the, the time when you came to the epiphany that you wanted to go this direction or expand in this, this business enterprise? We found a couple things. First of all, we found, um, you know, it's kind of the, the 110, 100 thing with, with large customers where you had one large customer saying, hey, will you do these, these three additional things for us? And we, we would say, well, we, we don't know how to do this third one, but these other two, we'll be happy to do those for you. Uh, and then 10 more customers kind of want the same thing, and then all of a sudden it becomes like a standard thing. So it's very, very driven by what we hear our customers asking us for. Um, you know, not all customers will ask for, for you know, what, what, what they want, so you've got to understand that as well. Uh, some customers are much more forward about that. Others, you know, we sort of bring them a set of capabilities and they go, oh, I, I know you had that. Oh, that, that, that sounds great. Uh, the other thing we've done is we've taken our supply chain knowledge and our uh, sort of Six Sigma quality process into the whole services world and said, how do we take cost out of the deployment and installation and usage and you know, uh, life cycle of owning and using a PC or a server inside a, inside a big company. Mm -hmm. And that's a very, very different approach to services than is traditional in our industry because we're really taking out costs instead of, of adding it. And we're doing things you know, remotely and in the factory. Yeah, we can have lots of folks in the field too, but there are new ways of doing this that can fundamentally alter the process. So we'll go into a company, we'll look at, here's the map of what they're doing today. Here are the best practices that we know of to, to do this, this, this process. And which of those best practices would they like to select, which actually kind of lowers the, the total effective cost for them of you know, using, using these, these solutions in, inside their, their operation. When you think about the process of bringing together a management team, as you're doing now, how would you engage them in, a, in such a way that you're picking the team and motivating the team so that you can get the best out of them? How do you, how do you go about the process of, of getting the best players and keeping them inspired? Well, it's, it's a lot of fun. I've done it before, and I'm doing it again right now. I think, uh, first of all, you've got to have a common set of goals and objectives that everybody kind of agrees on. And so the frequency of meetings uh, could be fairly high, uh, you know, um, as, as you're doing that. And in our case, I mean, our team is meeting weekly and we're reviewing the business. How's the business going? What are our customers telling us? What are we, we delivering that they love? What are we not delivering? What are competitors doing? What do we need to change? You know, what, what are our kind of core metrics look like? But first of all, you want everybody to realize that we're all basically, you know, handcuffed together, and we all go up or down together. And, you know, you don't have one guy succeeding, another guy failing. We're going to talk about how do we help each other succeed and what, what does each other need to, to cause ultimate success for the company. So really getting a shared set of, uh, of goals that, that uh, we're all locked on together. When I talk to so many entrepreneurs and CEOs about this process of engagement with really creative, really passionate people. They come from diverse backgrounds. You want all of that, but it's natural for conflicts and contention to erupt. And some of that's a good thing and some of that's a bad thing. How do you harvest the conflict that comes from having really highly engaged people? I mean, some of these meetings 
a CEO doesn't invite outsiders to because they're so contentious. Could you talk about that? You know, uh, we love debate. Debate's fantastic, but but uh, you know, we, we we love data too. So <laughs> facts. So you know, we're we're sort of a bunch of fact-driven uh, folks, and and so we we like to you know, if we're having a discussion and it's getting fairly emotional, uh, and we don't have a lot of data, that's really not very useful. So you call it kind of call a timeout and say, okay, let's go get the following, you know, five pieces of information, and let's come back and and look at the data and then we'll decide what to do. Um, but, you know, the, the facts are our friend, and, and we'll go with facts, uh, you know, nine times out of ten. When you think about the many large organizations, having that kind of level of debate is sometimes difficult. It seems that some people who come to the table a bit intimidated with being able to vet the tough issues. How do you draw people out so that they can give you the hard facts when you need them? You know, it's almost a precondition for being on the team. You know, if you, if you, if, you, if you're not, you know, if you're not able to do that, I'm not sure it's the right it's the right team for you to be on. So, first of all, I think you got to have, uh, you know, capable you know capable folks. You don't want to have a group that's too large because then you, you just don't get the the kind of participation that you want from everyone. You don't have engaging and, and deep discussions. And you kind of go back to what are the principles of what we're trying to accomplish here. And everybody's sort of aligned together. We succeed or fail together. And, you know, we, we, we do it, you know, based around data. And, and also we do it with a view towards what's going to be best for our shareholders, what's going to be best for our customers. Michael, when you think about innovation, I talked to Gates and Schwab and Buffett. They talk about how big companies have difficulty engaging in the level of risk-taking that's natural for innovation. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if innovation is courage rewarded by bad headlines. Yeah. You're supposed to learn yeah. from your failures, but I haven't met a Wall Street analyst or a media person that ever gives you, you know, kudos for a noble mistake uh, right, that right. you're attempting. What's your advice and lessons around learning how to innovate in an organization and inspiring people to take the risks necessary? You know, the, the last um, large meeting we had with our leaders the first thing I did was I showed about five examples of things that were different, they were risky, they were changes, and they all happen to work, okay? <laughs> uh, first, you got to tolerate risk, and you got to be open about it and say, we appreciate risk-taking. In fact, I'm going to evaluate our leaders on risk-taking. That doesn't mean recklessness, because <laughs> we don't want that, but we do need to place some bets on things that we think are great opportunities for us, even if they have a three, four, or five-year horizon to them. They're not all going to work. That's just the way it goes. <laughs> but but uh, we can make some informed and logical bets about things that we think are going to be big opportunities for us. And then we can celebrate those. And then also, if you have a failure, uh, you know, well, that's all right. Now, if, if you fail every time, well, that's, that's not okay. <laughs> we, we, we're, we're not interested in that. But, you know, uh, if you have an occasional failure and you learn from that, that could be actually great. So, um, you know, we, we want, we want uh, our, our teams to, you know, embrace you know, risk and, and take on new things. Could you take us through one of those examples of innovation and risk that was taken on? Kind of what was the risk and what might be feared in terms of the outcome? And then how did it work out for the better? We have a lot of examples. I mean, one that comes to mind for me is, uh, you know, Dell.com. You know, when, when we started Dell.com, 
and this this will sound uh, you know a, a little obvious now because it is, but at the time it wasn't so obvious. When we started Dell.com, there was a big fear in the organization that this would somehow take away the the uh, role of the salesperson, and it was real kind of spooky and mysterious stuff when when we first started this. And a lot of the salespeople are like, oh, I don't know about this, you know. So the customers are going to be able to go online and and order and uh, you know what does that mean? What does that mean for us? You know, I sort of instantly knew what it meant. I, I, it meant productivity, and it meant that our people would become more productive because they would be doing things that were more valuable and not doing the things that were less valuable. So actually, the combination of the person plus you know Dell.com would be much better than what we had before. But it was sort of a leap of faith and a trial and error in terms of how do you get it right and the compensation systems and all those kinds of things. You know, if you had kind of taken a much more cautious approach, it could have taken, you know, three, four, ten years to do that. Well, you know, in our case, it took, you know, four or five months. We said, we're going to do this. You know, uh, strap yourself on. Here we go, baby. You know, because, <laughs> you know, the, the, we, we got to make the change. And what would be your advice then having gone through that transition, this whole idea of conflict between the clicks and the bricks or the sales force and the so-called channel conflict, would be your kind of fast-track advice for people in terms of building an organization around that? I think it somewhat depends on, on, the, on, the, on the, the, uh, appetite uh, for change and the history of change in, in a business. We've been blessed by, by uh, you know, having change as sort of a semi-constant in Dell's business, so our people tend to embrace change and they tend to view change as something that's a, a good thing. If you don't have that, well, uh, that can, that, you know, it's going to take longer. You don't just go from no change for 80 years to now we're going to make big changes. It is one of these things where uh, you kind of have to get people around the reality of, of you know, whatever is occurring. you got to create a sense of urgency uh, around the problems. You gotta, you know, make sure people understand exactly why are we making this change, <laughs> um, and then kind of make sure it happens. I'd like to turn for a moment to the environment and, and sustainability. Um, you're a guy who buys a lot of trees and has acreage all over. Could you talk about how you're personally connected to uh, the environment, and then how that might map back to the ambitions you might have for the organization? Well, I, I, I do have a lot of trees, uh, personally. Um, uh, like trees. I think trees are good. Um, you know, I, I consider myself, uh, you know, more of an environmentalist and, and try to be thoughtful about, you know, what, what we're doing uh, in our personal lives and as a company in terms of, um, you know, sustainability and, and environmental resources. You know, one of the things we figured out when we looked at this at Dell is that of all the things that we could do, the thing that would have absolutely the biggest impact was the product that we shipped out every day. So we could have, you know, solar panels on the building and we could do all these, you know, wind energy things and those would be all be just great. But the biggest impact we could have is the actual product that we ship, you know, hundreds of thousands of a day. It's not that hard to figure out. You do the math. So we undertook an effort across all of our product groups to say, how do we fundamentally make these products much more environmentally sound, uh, lower energy usage, you know, better you know, a materials profile, take out the hazardous substances, all those kinds of things. 
So for example, the desktop computers we're shipping today to businesses use 70% less power than the ones we shipped about a year ago. A huge, huge reduction in energy consumption. And we have you know, energy-efficient configurations in our server product line as well. Uh, so kind of energy smart configurations. And there's a lot we can do there. And then we've worked back with our suppliers to say, how do we create you know, even more advanced power management so the energy consumption uh, goes down by a pretty huge factor? And I think we've done things with, with uh, engaging consumers, giving them a chance to buy a tree, you know, when, when, they, when, they buy their, when they buy a product, a tree that will uh, consume the CO2 equivalent of what the, the energy production would be to power the product over the life cycle. And that's something you know, consumers are, are pretty interested in. I'd love to ask you to think about the last few years, think about the, one of the tough challenges that you had that you can stand to talk about right now. Well, one I think we can we can begin to talk about is you know in 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 our company we had an organization structure that got a bit unwieldy, and you know we had twenty some odd folks reporting into the CEO, and uh, you know what happens in that case is you you have too many decisions, you know bubbling up, or decisions don't get made, you have sort of unclear missions and you know overlaps in the organization and it can really slow things down why did it happen well uh you know we didn't want to say no to this person we didn't want to say no to that person and and, and all of a sudden sort of unravels well if 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 he's going to report to the ceo then so should she and so should he and you know and then all of a sudden you you get an organization just makes no sense at all and so it's time to change it you know, and we, we sort of sat down with, with each person and sort of explained, here's what we need to do, here's why we need to do it. And it was, it was, it was painful, uh, certainly. But uh, actually, our, our, our folks all saw that it was, it was the right thing to do, needed to be done. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't uh, uh, waste a lot of time in, 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 um, in, de in delaying it. Uh, we did give people time to sort of emotionally un understand uh, wh what it meant for them and, and, and why it would be better for the company. Uh, and then we go, go make it happen. Michael, could you talk about the group that you had and how it had scaled up to the size that it was and what it looks like now and what some of the benefits are of the organization in terms of serving its markets going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we had, we had uh, you know, uh, some groups of things, you know, re reporting into the, to the CEO, which should have really been all grouped together. So, for example, in, in, the, in our America's business, our U.S. business, uh, well, actually includes, you know, Canada and Latin America and all those, we had, you know, kind of four general managers all reporting into the CEO. You know, you could justify it in, in, in the sense of, well, you know, this is a $9 billion business, this is $8 billion business, all true, but it, you know, didn't really make sense in terms of how do you how do you manage the totality of what the company was trying to to accomplish, and you know now we've we've uh, we've you know changed the structure, simplified the structure. We've also created some new uh, positions uh, in areas where we're where we're trying to invest and build new capability. So we have a new global services organization, 
uh, and we're investing a lot in that because that's a high growth area for us and opportunity for us you know, for, for the future. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson, and please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.